Hello and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 10th, 2023. With the Super Bowl and the end of football season upon us, we can look forward to another landmark date on the calendar. Pitchers and catchers report to baseball spring training in a few days. While you ponder whether your team will win the World Series this year, we'll discuss the interesting pharma news from this week. First up is yet another push by the pharma industry to limit the impact of Medicare price negotiations. Kathy, this latest effort targets novel technologies? Well, um, I think that's what the plan is. Um, That'll be a focus. So um, I did a story based on an interview with the incoming chairman of pharma, um, Novartis' CEO, Vas Narasimhan. And he said that they're, you know, I think a primary focus of their advocacy is going to be fixing what they see as a real issue with the way drugs are, are selected for Medicare price negotiation. And that um, the main problem they see is that drugs approved under an NDA are are sub, could be subject to negotiated prices nine year after nine years after approval. Um, they think uh, industry thinks that the timeline should be increased to 13 years, which would be consistent with the way biologics are treated. So I think, you know, the, the, because the reality of, you know, working with a divided Congress and President Biden in office means that legislation to make that change is really not likely for a few years. Um, we talked a lot about what pharma can do, you know, working through the uh, rulemaking process. And so, yes, I think they what they will try to do is find those areas where CMS has some discretion um, to, you know, sort of interpret the law and they'll try to, you know, find ways to, you know, reduce the impact on, on NDA drugs. And, you know, one example he, he mentioned was for, you know, novel technologies, and he gave RNA drugs as one example, you know, maybe CMS could choose the lowest discount, um, you know, mentioned by the law, which would be 25%, and apply that to those types of drugs for a certain period of time. And that in recognition of, you know, their, the, how innovative they are. And in that way, CMS could work to sort of, you know, blunt the impact of, you know, this, that timeline on innovation, because their argument is that companies are not going to want to, you know, develop these kinds of drugs because they won't have enough time to generate peak sales before they're going to be subject to these big price cuts. So um, it'll be interesting to see. He gave a pretty long list of issues that, you know, pharma has identified and, um, they don't have too much time before they can kind of shape the policies for the first year because um, CMS is due to issue the first list of drugs um, eligible for negotiation in September. But he he seemed very focused on, you know, on 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 that work. So we'll see what happens. I guess this kind of sounds like the, you know, since we can't get the big kind of, you know, knockout blow we're going to uh-huh. try death by a thousand paper cuts yeah type of thing <laughs> i think i think so i mean they're gonna they're focusing on what they realistically can do um in given the situation so um and it is it is going to be i mean it's 
CMS is going to issue a guidance for the, you know, the the negotiation process in the first go round, and it will have a 30-day comment period. So that's not a lot of time to, you know, for industry to weigh in and try to kind of persuade uh, CMS to make changes. So the compressed timeline makes this really challenging. And in fact, you know, I've heard some speculation that CMS is just not going to be able to make this deadline, that they're going to have to delay. But, um, you know, they seem like they want to, they want to try. So. Kathy, one of the other things from the uh, um, interview that uh, um, I found very interesting was his <laughs> uh, concern that the uh, discounts that they'll have to pay, you know, could vary from year to year. Uh, yeah. Based on uh, politics or you know changes uh-huh. in the administration and sort of uh, you know uh-huh. as as onerous as for kind of a uh, you know a price cut uh, might be that would be imposed you know, once it's uh, once it's uh, you know sort of done to a drug uh, you know it at least allows them to sort of kind of plan going forward what the revenue might uh, might look like but if the next year is for kind of uh, you know someone's uh, running for re-election or uh, what have you there's, there could be sort of kind of uh, you know pressure to ratchet those uh, um, uh, up or down I guess it depends on your perspective uh, um, which way they're going but sort of but uh, um, uh, it's uh, um, you know something that's sort of kind of uh, I hadn't quite appreciated about the uh, about the law is it's sort of kind of it's not a uh, it's not a one time uh, uh, problem for a uh, um, a drug for once they get on the list and uh, um, you know get their pricing set by uh, Medicare that could uh, you know sort of kind of uh, change the next year and sort of kind of how do you uh, how do you predict what's uh, what's going to happen to your uh, your revenue stream under those circumstances so that was a uh, another uh, um, complication that uh, uh, sponsors will have to uh, uh, deal with as this uh, law rolls out. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't, I didn't think about that either. They they renegotiate the price every year. Well, they don't renegotiate the price uh, for the drugs that you know are negotiated until, for example, generic competition comes on on board or whatever, and then there is a process to renegotiate. But I think what what um, he was saying is that it, it's very important that um, CMS set set a framework that doesn't allow for a lot of variation on the way they approach assigning discounts because then, you know, as you said, Matt, um, it it could change, the approach could change pretty dramatically, say in a different administration or whatever. And industry really wants the sort of the reliability or the predictability um, so that they can, you know, as they're evaluating, for example, R&D projects, they have a pretty clear idea of what the what the discount is going to be in in whatever number of years, um, because and factor that into a decision whether to go with a project or not. So yeah, I think that is sort of a a separate issue, and it 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 also relates to the amount of discretion that CMS has, you know, in in sort of setting the rules. But I think what he you know what he was saying is that there should be a way to make this a very predictable. Um, uh, process. That's interesting that they would say that, you know, that they would, they prefer, you know, maybe, you know, the predictability over, say, even if it's, yeah, not even if it's more money, yeah, yeah, bigger discount, you know, yeah. you, you could get a lower discount if you, you know, but we don't like gambling, I guess, in this, well, yeah, in this scenario. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing we saw this week was um, pharma, I guess, uh, another, you know, another one of the 
you know, many paper cuts that they're going after with this is they're pushing state legislatures to blunt kind of blunt the impact of the the price negotiation provisions that there was a I saw I think it was a blog post from pharma saying, you know, states don't have to live with what the CMS tells says they're going to do and, you know, offering all these kind of alternative things they could do and say, like, the state did this and that state did that. And look how wonderful it is, you know. Mm. I'm I'm curious if if you know any you know it's they could probably convince state legislatures to do a lot of these things, but I'm curious if that you know kind of um, you know makes any difference or kind of you know I don't know if you know forces CMS to do some things that maybe they weren't planning to do you know going yeah. forward. Yeah, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how much leeway they would have to change Medicare policy, but um, I'm sure pharma would will find areas that they if they exist. And then Matt, I guess, uh, you know, President Biden predictably raised during the State of the Union address, you know, the the prescription drug price um, issue as well, right? Uh, absolutely. It was the, uh, um, uh, I don't know if it was the, uh, the uh, biggest bipartisan uh, um, aspect to it, but it certainly sort of uh, um, illustrated the, uh, the, the small bore uh, effort that he's uh, he's going for. He even got a uh, um, uh, an applause uh, um, uh, from uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the new Speaker of the House, uh, when he was talking about uh, um, pharma companies' uh, um, uh, price uh, gouging. Uh, um, he didn't use that phrase per se, but uh, um, on the uh, the insulin issue. And the uh, the irony to me is that sort of that the uh, um, the the, the uh, insulin price setting is, uh, I think, sort of more of a uh, um, Problem for Medicare insurance at uh, um, at this point than the uh, um, the firms them uh, themselves. Although obviously as this kind of uh, rolls out and uh, um, um, expands uh, as uh, um, uh, Biden wants it to, I think it just it would necessarily sort of put more pressure on uh, um, the sponsors themselves. But uh, you know, in principle, I think uh, um, uh, you know companies like the idea of uh, small copays for uh, um, uh, for the consumer. So uh, um, uh, this is a uh, a policy they could get behind if it were actually sort of kind of uh, framed in a way that uh, um, could uh, um, could work for them. Yeah, yes. I, I, I thought it was funny how so much of the discourse around the insulin, um, you know, Medicare copay caps in the State of the Union just like shows you how the how a lot of what gets translated to the public and even some of the top policymakers, right, is is not quite accurate and precise about everything that's going on and. Right, these insulin, um, you know, copay caps are sort of more seen as really more of a policy stab at like the PBMs and the rebate um, um, dynamics, and something pharma has liked and Biden kind of mischaracterized. I think who was getting hit by that policy, um, which is interesting, right? That he's trying to sort of get a political win for going after pharma for a policy that pharma actually generally feels pretty happy about and would be happy if, you know, as we know, they've sort of pushed for those sorts of patient kind of, you know, sharing of this, the rebates and the savings in other ways as well. It is funny, after all these years that we've been hearing debates about PBM is that people still don't quite understand, you know, how that process works. Is there anybody that understands fully how the process works? I mean, I think it's so no. entangled in everything yeah. now. I don't think you could try to map it out if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, that's why there's such a push for transparency. 
Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting issue. And, you know, uh, you know, obviously this will be fun to watch going forward, you know, as well. Yeah. Um, next, we're going to revisit an issue that was that we discussed last week. Sarah, advisory committee issues emerged during a congressional hearing about the COVID-19 response. Yeah, um, Representative Anna Eshoo, who is the ranking Democrat um, on the Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee, um, comes from sort of a pharma-heavy district, I would say, in California. Um, Northern California was um, pushing both Califf and um, CDC Director Bolensky on, you know, sort of concerns. She felt like the, uh, it seemed like she felt like the all of the vaccine advisory committees that happened during you know have happened during COVID have kind of created some more confusion in some cases for the public than act than you know helping with transparency and understanding and um, it particularly she seemed concerned that you know people don't quite appreciate that an advisory committee is advisory in nature right <laughs> and right and you know. Um, communication if you know ultimately FDA or CDC in particular I think is where we really saw this with COVID you know sort of went in a little bit of a direct different direction from their advisors communication around that um, you know is is really important so people can, can kind of understand the dynamics I think she also seemed to suggest seemed to feel like maybe to some degree the composition of committees need to be reconsidered or maybe how, even like how many meetings or, you know, process needs to be kind of sh streamlined in some way. I, I think she was she certainly wasn't the only person that felt like, you know, with having both the FDA vaccine committee and then CDC meeting, um, you know, to outsiders, it does seem like there's, you know, an awful lot of steps that may be a little bit duplicative. Um, and Caliph, um, you know, reassured her, I think, generally that like FDA right now is involved in kind of a process to rethink or re reorganize to some degree its advisory committees. But both he and Walensky also were very clear that like having these outside experts weigh in and give CDC and FDA advice is really important and critical. So neither of them were like telling her like there's any chance they're getting rid of this these processes but um you know both of them said they are reviewing it um i think the interesting thing about what's been going on at fda is i i don't know that um the review processes has i think have seen as partially resulting from what happened with aduhelm more than um maybe the um covid vaccine process um, but, you know, this whole conversation did remind me a lot of some of things we've talked about a lot through COVID. Um, you know, I think there's always been this sense that, like, bringing these vaccines to advisory committees help might help with sort of public trust and understanding of the vaccines and so forth. And as somebody who's obviously spent hours and hours and hours watching these meetings, these are not meetings that are designed for the average American, right, to follow or understand, <laughs> right? You might appreciate that the process happens, but I, I just don't, it's just hard for, like, and maybe it is important that they go through the process, but, like, you can expect, like, general members of the public who've never tuned into this kind of meeting or never followed drug development and vaccine development to, you know, watch these and not be confused and really get anything out of it, right? And in some ways, I actually, now that I think about this, I think I wrote a story about that um, probably a few years ago in the pandemic, right? That like, 
if you watch these meetings, you often, you know, science is not as straightforward, I think, as sometimes, again, people have tried to say to the public during the pandemic, right? These are not like mathematical equations <laughs> where, you know, everything always adds up to a clear answer, right? Um, there's a lot of like gray and nuance. And I think to some degree, if you come in as like a member of the public and try to follow these conversations, you might be almost like more um, concerned <laughs> rather than less, right? Because you hear so much talk about, you know, the various benefit risk trade-offs and, you know, you'll hear advisory committee members ask like 10,000 questions about saying, oh, we need this data and that data ideally, and, you know, we're missing this and you should study this. And at the end of the day, they'll still vote for, <laughs> you know, that the product is ready for market. And then you'll be a little bit confused, like, wait, there's so many gaps. And um, so, you know, I think like if the FDA and um, CDC and the government in general want to to help the public understand, you know, some of these crucial topics better, which is important. It's just, I, I don't think this is these advisory committees, which serve a very important purpose. And I, you know, sort of agree with Caleb and Walensky, they sh shouldn't go away, but I don't think we can think about them as this is how we're going to like communicate to the general public about this process. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I, I also laughed when Kay, when in, in your story where Caleb said that they're like democracy and they're messy, um, which is is true because you know we we've all listened to the you know these meetings where you've got you know you you listen to the whole day and then you get kind of a I don't know sort of recommendation from from. <laughs> From the committee, whether it's a you know, I mean, it, it could be in the form of a six-five vote one way or the other, and you know, they're some of the you know they're voting yes, but they're saying I would have voted no if, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, it, they, it's easy to muddy for them to muddy the water and, and kind of confuse people. But um, yeah, you know, FDA uses I mean, FDA stated publicly that one of the reasons they have advisory committee meetings is so they can talk about these things in public. So you know, I. Yeah, like, I, I guess I'm with you, Sarah. I don't want them to go away either. But, you know, I, I keep thinking there are ways to to streamline them. And maybe that's, you know, that I don't know if that'd be good or bad. That would just be for my own sanity or my ideas for streamlining them. But, you know, <laughs> that's just me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the other thing I did that I didn't mention in my story that I thought um, was interesting, and I guess maybe perhaps before my time was Caleb also mentioned that he once chaired an FDA advisory committee too, which is interesting to, you know, that um, to think about that he's had, you know, perspective on being on, you know, all different sides of the, that um, sort of process. Yeah, I guess the question becomes then, is there something, is there something realistically that can be done, you know, it, or, or do you, you know, do, do you say, okay, we want to change the purpose of these meetings i mean like you said sarah if we're if we're trying to if we want to use it to communicate with joe sixpack in ohio and not necessarily people like you and me or the researcher down the street at nih or you know the you know the five other companies that are developing drugs in this space um you know is there a way to restructure the meeting to do that or do you necessarily want to do that i guess is probably the first question you should ask right i mean again i think it seems like if you if the fda or cdc or congress you know feels like there's a broader public 
communication <laughs> issue that needs to be addressed. I'm just not sure you can address that and get at the kind of like scientific conversation that FDA needs to, or, and, you know, and CDC for ASAP needs to get out of their advisory panel. So maybe. Well, it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times they need literal, they need, they have legitimate questions about like clinical relevance and, you know, you, you know, how they, how it would be used in practice and, and you know, and, and that sort of thing that you just, you know, non-doctors aren't going to understand. So, or non, you know, non-medical personnel aren't going to, are going to understand or really care that much about. So, you know, it, yeah, you, you have that, you know, you're going to have that, you know, that sort of thing you have to wrestle with too. The other thing with, in terms of duplication, I, you know, ACIP does a different thing than Verpac does. And I, I, that was probably not explained very well during the pandemic when we were listening to like, a VERPAC meeting on Tuesday and then an ACIP meeting on Friday, you know, it, and it seemed like they were saying the same things over and over again and voting. And then we were like, okay, what just happened? But ACIP actually has a very different function than the FDA's vaccine advisory committee does. And, you know, that probably could be better explained to make it clear what those roles are. But, you know, and again, and, you know, ACIP is even, even said, in the middle of the pandemic that they're having less meetings and they don't need to have votes every time, you know, the, the vaccine was updated or, um, you know, they, they FDA made it like an incremental change to the application or something. So. Yeah, it did seem like at, at some points during COVID, there was more interest, even I believe Peter Marks maybe had expressed some interest in this of thinking about, is there a way to sort of streamline or condense the like FDA back the vaccine their vaccines advisory panel and the CDC process um, because they do serve different purposes but at the same time I think there there did feel like a little bit of du duplicativeness I guess going on there so I think that is the one place that um, for vaccines I, I I wouldn't be like totally shocked if they do think about if there's a better way to handle that because it, it's like sort of a unique element of, you know, the, you know, drug and medical product space where um, CDC has, you know, more oversight and a role there than just FDA. And we were also in kind of a, we were in a, an uncharted waters there for what, two years maybe when the vaccines were being rolled out, like really being rolled out and they had to actually make recommendations who should get what. And, you know, there were legitimate questions about that. So, you know, maybe now that we've learned, you know, we've gone through that, they, we can, they can learn a little from the experience and, you know, maybe we don't need to represent, re represent everything to the ACIP once the VRPAC sees it. Maybe that's just something they can, you know, they can read a report or something like that and, and make the call based on that or something. I don't know. But yeah, it's a, you know, it, it's an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting problem to have and, you know, Never, no one's going to vote, at least in my field, is going to vote for less public meetings because that just lowers transparency. So, you know, you could streamline things, but then what are you, are you willing to give up? What do you have to give up to do that? So, Just to tie it back in uh, briefly to uh, the conversation we had with Kathy uh, um, in the last segment, uh, you know, um, uh, ACIP obviously doesn't sort of uh, set reimbursement uh, in the uh, – um, in the way that uh, Medicare is going to do, and there are no uh, Medicare advisory committees planned for uh, their uh, their uh, uh, price setting for uh, 
for drugs. But, uh, you know, I think you are going to increasingly see this pattern of, um, you know, FDA saying something and then um, another step uh, in the in the government itself being uh, necessary for uh, real reimbursement. Uh, you know, obviously that step won't take place for nine or 13 years uh, under the Medicare uh, um, IRA pricing program, but uh, as we saw with uh, Agihelm, that uh, you know there could be more processes under which uh, you know Medicare starts to sort of kind of uh, be the uh, the gatekeeper for uh, um, for reimbursement of uh, products that are nominally approved by uh, by FDA, just like sort of kind of the ACIP checkboxes uh, you know often used for sort of uh, um, uh, you know vaccine. Uh, um, uh, reimbursement and uh, um, uh, placement on the uh, various government programs as well. So, uh, um, you know, it is something that uh, as uh, that sort of kind of uh, increasing uh, um, formality perhaps of, uh, um, of uh, government sanctioned reimbursement uh, increases that they uh, they may want to think about an advisory uh, system. And obviously it will come with all the uh, the problems that you all have been lining, uh, outlining. But, uh, um, you know, I don't think we're moving away from sort of kind of that uh, second uh, uh, hurdle to jump through, even though we're kind of out of a pandemic uh, situation. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, Matt. So there's approval, but then there's questions around access that are decided by a separate um, government group. Yeah, it's an inter- that's a good point. It's, uh, you know, something to keep in mind, too, that, uh, you know, although those can, you know, the purposes are are as part of the, the whole idea that the purposes are different. So finally, we're going to look at the COVID 19 vaccines and the FDA's plan to update them periodically. Late last month, the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee met to discuss a plan to consider strain changes about June each year in anticipation of a fall booster campaign, kind of similar to how the flu shot is updated each year. While that system seemed to work for the, uh, the system envisioned seemed to work for the mRNA vaccines that Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna make, it may not work for Novavax, which makes a protein based protein-based vaccine. The mRNA vaccine companies need about three months to prepare an updated vaccine, while Novavax said it needs six months. That throws a major wrench into the strain selection schedule that Sieber envisions. Ideally, strains will be selected as late in the year as possible to best match the variants that are circulating. But if the protein-based vaccine can't get on the market in time, that schedule may have to change, which could affect the efficacy of all the products. Verpac members made clear that they don't want to run Novavax out of the market because they can't produce updates as quickly as the other companies. And some Verpac members wondered whether the June date that is envisioned may even be too late anyway, because there's been many surges in case counts during the summers, the last couple of years of the pandemic. But FDA officials are adamant they want updated vaccines in the winter when COVID, RSV, and the flu are all prominent at the same time. So I'm curious what you all think of this. Is the FDA risking a mistake by pushing a flu-like schedule for COVID or trying to push a flu-like schedule for COVID? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure uh, what can save the uh, Novavax uh, vaccine at this point. The, uh, the sales are so uh, um, uh, so low that, uh, um, you know, I would certainly like to see uh, um, more vaccine platforms out there. And obviously, we're kind of all innovative uh, technology should be uh, widely adopted in my uh, my opinion, especially as we think about for kind of this uh, um, this, you know, uh, bird flu uh, pandemic and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, most of our strategy to combat uh, bird flu uh, 
depends on birds staying alive so they can produce uh, eggs to uh, help us make vaccines. <laughs> so uh, that does not uh, um, does not seem particularly good. Obviously, there are uh, um, other ways to do that, but uh, for the most part, it's, uh, it's still the uh, um, the uh, um, egg based uh, um, egg based products. So uh, um, you know, I'd like to see uh, Novavax uh, flourish in whatever way they can. But uh, I you know I, I think if they had no need to adapt their uh, um, their COVID vaccine. I think they would still uh, still struggle to, uh, um, uh, to, uh, to 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 get uptake. So I'm not sure uh, this is something uh, FDA can fix uh, for them. Yeah. I guess like I sort of um, having at one of the advisory committees. Again, this was all very Novavax heavy. They seem to be making the case that got some advisors. You know, they were like thinking, hmm, maybe there's they Novavax might actually be better or offer some advantages to the mRNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. And I guess one yeah. thing I do worry about if we sort of embrace this like this sort of flu kind of dynamic FDA envisions for um, COVID vaccines going forward is that it's so designed for these mRNA vaccines that as we start thinking about like next gen vaccines or other technologies, it sort of will make it harder for anything better to get a foothold right so maybe novavax isn't the thing that we need to or want to get a foot you know that we need to worry about in that regard but i do think there's clear you know desire for something potentially better than what we do have now and and how do you sort of you know, deal with the current technology we have now, but also leave an opening for something better to come along that might not fit into this dynamic. And at the same time, I think there's other things about the, t- the timeline that Derek wrote about and the committee members wrote about and I wrote about a while back, which is, you know, while flu very clearly sort of has the seasonality in the U.S., we actually have not seen the same seasonality um, for um COVID and that's why, you know, FDA sort of has indicated they envisioned some people would probably get two shots a year, but then it seemed like that hasn't gotten as much attention in how they envisioned that working under this approach. And, you know, that also creates complications for figuring out, you know, again, which variant you want to target and um, how do you figure out, how do you, you know, ensure people get the most up-to-date shot while also giving enough time to produce it and so forth. So, I mean, I think it seems like maybe what the FDA's vision and the federal government's vision here is like kind of letting the, doing what they think is good and will get the most uptake of these vaccines rather than what is necessarily like perfect or completely ideal based on the science of this you know, virus and the, you know, epidemiological patterns of it. But, um, you know, I was a bit surprised in general that this is sort of FDA just like very quickly embraced this flu-like approach when we actually didn't really see great uptake from them trying to that this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I think at least my impression from the meeting listening to it was, that they they kind of they they're being flexible and and I think that they've said it multiple times we are going to be flexible with this this is not kind of we're not locked into June as the day to pick a strain um, and I think they just kind of threw they you know they kind of just threw a date out there at you know just to have something down just to get you know to get feedback so they had something to get feedback um, but 
I mean, yeah. I mean, what are you supposed to do? I, 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 I don't know. And the other thing that, you know, people, you know, don't maybe not, don't want to discuss quite yet until some of the studies are done is that there, 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 there is an investigation of safety, of uh, safety issues that may or may not have popped up during concomitant administration of flu and COVID vaccine. So, you know, if you're going to give them all in the fall and you can't, <laughs> And there's a they find a, a legitimate safety risk, you know, you're going to have even more trouble getting uptake because you're going to tell you have to tell some people, go get your flu shot, wait X amount of time, then go get your COVID shot or vice versa. And, you know, that's a, you know, a whole other kind of headache that they would have to, uh, you know, figure out a way to, to, you know, to plan. Another interesting issue that emerged here was and it, this is kind of just I just find it interesting because of the the wonkiness of it. If a company refuses to update their vaccine, what does the FDA do? Somebody asked that question. The FDA said we're thinking about it. We don't know. And you with the flu, you know, with the flu, I, I don't think we've ever seen it happen. And they just, you know, they somebody there's a I think it's WHO picks the strain every year. Everyone agrees that's fine. But in this, in the case of COVID, and Sarah, you mentioned this, uh, you know, alluded to this with the Novavax vaccine, saying like they, you know, they, someone could say, like we don't think we should take out the original strain from the vaccine because it's creating more immunity, or it's helping you know boost immunity along with the additional strains, the the new strains. And say like I refuse. We're we're not going to do that. We're not going to change. So what does FDA do? <laughs> do you pull the license? Do you say, well, let's go back and think about it some more? How do you deal with that problem? It's a it's it's a real it's a really interesting kind of question to ponder. I don't know if it's like an academic question or what, but <laughs> yeah, and I. I, I would feel like uncomfortable talking, about, but I know I've like read in detail a few times this year exactly how right the the sort of sign offs work for the flu vaccine, and you know so that you know each year you're pushing out the new sort of lots or products. So right, they may have to figure out how exactly you know you're updating the if it's under BLA or if it's under EUA how they're sort of updating the clearances. Um, for these products each year, which um, could be dicey and it's going to be more complicated in some ways, or it could be more complicated or see, you know, for FDA, you know, if there's not as much of that formal, like global, you know, update or, or buy-in, does it make a company pushing back on FDA seem more credible if it's just, you know, those two parties against each other? Yeah, that's the other thing that, yeah, is that FDA might be going it alone here for at least initially when they if they implement this and yeah the you know the rest of the world doesn't you know isn't ready to update to whatever strain and fda says but this is what we're seeing in the u.s so change it and yeah i mean i imagine for (laughs) manufacturing purposes i mean this year um there were differences and you know some countries went with the the ba1 and the u.s went with ba45 and i think the reason why that maybe sort of worked is they were already sort of all working on the BA1 um, <laughs> vaccines and had that, and then they could pivot. But I, I imagine for like manufacturing purposes and, the, you know, practically it would be pretty hard for companies if um, 
there isn't more global alignment for this all to be feasible and get things done on time. I think they said it was they were they were asked that during the meeting and they said it wasn't it either it it wasn't raised as I think a, as a as a huge issue. But yeah, I mean, you know, you can't you still can see it things popping up or you know, whether it's delays or you know, whatever you want to, you know, whatever it is. Um you'd see things, you know, kind of becoming a problem if they got to make 25 different formulations of the vaccine based on where they're selling it to. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. 